evening, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, pleasantries first before we jump into the major belly of the conversation. I wanted to welcome you to, Am to the Amanda Forum today, which is Confronting Inequality, the South African Crisis, and it's the title of the book being launched tonight. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to the AIDC, Alternative Information Development Center, which is an activist think tank formed in 1996 in response to the political context of that time. Um, the Amanda Forum tonight is part or forms part of a series of fora happening here at the AIDC, and they serve as sort of a platform to critically engage with issues today. Our speaker tonight is Michael Nesson Smith, who is the Deputy Director of the Institute for African Alternatives and the editor of the book in question. I also would like to take this opportunity to say we're particularly excited about having this book launch here today because at the AIDC, the essence of our work is developing a multi-pronged approach to tackling inequality. And there's some housekeeping issues if it's your first time here. The lavatories are in the passage onto your left, and we actually have a library, and the book itself is in a library. And if you'd like to join, please have a conversation with the librarian, Tola Kele. Interestingly enough, we also have Amanda here, and our great editor has a piece within Amanda <laughs> called What Do We Mean by Fascism? Great, <laughs> riveting piece, other than the book itself. Uh, <laughs> this is going. <laughs> This is going for 25 rand, so if you'd like to get a copy, it's off the streets, it's hot. What's another hot item that's here is the book itself, which is going for 150 rand. So you could do the millennial thing in Snapscan or go to Calorie Carolee. The town. Yeah, yeah. To Carolee. <laughs> and give her 150 rand cash. So I'm going to hand over to Michael now. Okay. Um, Thanks for the introduction, and thanks everyone for being here. Um, very happy to be given this opportunity to launch um, an edited volume of mine um, at the AIDC. Um, so I don't know if there are any authors in the room. I don't know if the authors have really gave the intellectual muscle and the meat to the book. But uh, so thank you, thank you for that. Um, I think we're going to do a sort of an interview sort of thing instead of a presentation or PowerPoint, anything like that. So I look forward to engaging with you this evening. I think to latch on what Michael was saying, we're all about alternatives and doing things completely different. So we don't want to bore everyone with Michael going on for about 45 minutes about the book itself, and then people leave, and then there's a riveting comment from the floor, and then I thank everyone for coming. So it's going to be for and also, there's always that random chair who does nothing but thank everyone. So, <laughs> this time, because we do things differently, we thought of having a conversation between me and Mike about the book itself, and then giving opportunity for comrades to then think in relation to the question that I posed to Mike. And then, after the small back and forth between me and Mike, we then open up to the floor and ask for engagement. And maybe the questions that I'm going to ask would be things that comrades are already going to be thinking about. So whatever Michael's response is, and if it's not sufficient enough, you could latch on and say, perhaps da-da-da-da-da-da. So we're hoping to finish at 8. So if I get lost in the rapture, do tell me. Um, but yeah, so first off, I'd like to start off by asking you, 
Do you want to speak a little bit about the global political and economic context in which the book is published? Sure. So maybe beginning to begin by saying that it wasn't very long ago when the issue of inequality wasn't on the forefront of everybody's minds. It's, now it's sort of you know right, uh, uh, front and center, one of the defining issues of our time. But not long ago, the argument was that inequality, if it existed, was going to be smoothed out. It's not really a problem because the market economy will resolve this in the, fu uh, uh, in the future. But since Thomas Piketty released his Capital in the 21st Century, you know, that idea has been debunked. We now know that inequality is uh, an inherent feature of capitalism. What we've also seen is that global, global inequality is on the rise. The, it's on the rise all over the world. Uh, of course, there, there are distinctions. If the patterns of inequality increases are different depending on where you are, but there is there is a, 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 global, a global trend. And so now there is this consensus that there's, uh, that there's, something, there's something that needs to be done about inequality. And since Piketty's book, there's been a, a sort of explosion of inequality studies across the globe. Last year, there was a global inequality uh, report that was released. And our book really must be seen in the context of that intellectual and political shift, except that we're localizing it, we're trying to bring the South African perspective to the question. Interesting. And I was wondering if you could talk to the current situation of inequality in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, look, I could frighten people with statistics because the statistics are really are quite, are quite shocking. But there's a sense in which everybody knows that, right? I mean, inequality is a, an everyday experience for people living in South Africa. I mean, it's quite clear to see the distinction between those who are more than well off and those that uh, struggle to get by. But what I will say is that inequality has increased since the democratic transition. So um, what we've seen is that in the upper income brackets, there has been a, some equalizing uh, tendency in terms of race and in terms of gender. But overall, economic inequalities have, have increased. And this has to do with you know, uh, uh, disproportionate access to resources, to infrastructure, to education, and the persisting um, discriminations that came about through the, in the apartheid workforce. Hierarchical workforce arrangements, you've got prejudice, you've got discrimination on the, on the basis of, of race, of race and gender. And that's, and that's, quite, and that, that's quite prevalent. I mean, I could, I, could, I could give you like, you know, a, a, a couple of statistics, you know, just to illustrate the point. In terms of wealth inequality, between 2008 and 2015, the top percentile of households held 70% of the nation's wealth, while the bottom 60% held a mere 7%. Between 2007 and 2017, the cumulative holdings of the top 10 earners on the JSE increased from 64 billion to 280 billion. Now, this is the decade after the financial crisis, and it's a decade since 2007 in which the economy as a whole has experienced really low growth, right? And our, the relative pay of our executives is, uh, compared to other developing countries is quite, is, is quite shocking. Um, our executives are paid, I mean, they're the seventh, paid, seventh highest paid executives in, in, in the globe. And this is in the context where 76% you know, of the population are under the threat, under constant threat of poverty. Uh, another thing to say is that advantage and disadvantage is, is inherited. 
So nine out of 10 children that are born in, in poor households are uh, likely to remain poor. And if you're born into a wealthy household, then you know, invariably you're going, to, you're going to remain wealthy. So the statistics are not you know, pretty. The current state of inequality in South Africa is not, doesn't make for a, you know, a, a nice picture. The details you can find in the book, but you know, I'm not going into too much more detail on that. Sure, sure. Thanks for that. I was wondering if maybe you could talk about the political sort of impact of inequality. So how, how does it feature in relation to corruption? Corruption, okay. Well, and the political, maybe to, to start with the political features is that inequality is very bad for democracy. It's very bad for keeping intact a viable democratic system. So. One of Piketty's more like provocative thesis is that if if inequality levels continue to increase in, in the way they're increasing globally, we're going to see the total domination of the rich and the wealthy over over our political and social sphere. So, of course, a high concentration of economic wealth uh, leads to a disproportionate influence on policy. Not only policy, but also leads to a, a disproportionate influence of our, on our social discourse, our political discourse through media, through advertising, and so on. Mm. So in a sense, that corrupts the essence of, dem uh, the essence of democracy. In the South African case, in Tuli Modunsela's um, uh, contribution to the piece, she also speaks about how you know, the agents of state capture preyed upon the existence of our extreme racial inequalities uh, and twisted them to suit their own narrow ends, right? So the, so, you know, during, once you recall, like, you know, during this time, we heard all these slogans, radical economic transformation, white monopoly capital, but they were, they were, they were divorced of any progressive content, really. Mm. So again, so the, the, the existence of racialized inequality, the continued existence of racialized inequality exposes us to these nefarious forces, because of course there's something legitimate to what they're saying that confuses people, that undermines democracy, facilitates corruption, and so on. So. So there's a chapter in the book that specifically focuses on spatial inequality. And I was hoping you could sort of zoom into that and using Cape Town as a vantage point. Okay. So spatial inequality is a chapter by Ivan Turok in the book, and he's, he argues that spatial inequality has been sort of largely ne neglected in our everyday thinking of inequality, although it shouldn't be because you know spatial inequality, uh, you know, it's about disproportionate access to to livelihoods and it, it really undermines social cohesion. And of course, it's a product of our history of land dispossession, forced removals, influx controls, um, and, and all of that. And um, you know, one way to think about it is, uh, Cape Town is, is a perfect place to do this, is to think when one walks, walks around during the day, we're asking how, how are people around me traveling to work? What's the quality of the infrastructure, the transport infrastructure? Is there enough? Is there enough housing? Where is that housing located? I mean, just the other day we heard that someone died uh, on, on, a, on a train in Salt River. I mean, these things are really, are really, really obscene. And when, when one thinks about the fact that there's a um, there's a golf course which pays a thousand rand in rent yeah. or something, mm. well, at the same time oh, yeah. the people are being squeezed a thousand per year. Per year. Per year, even worse. Okay, <laughs> I mean that's shocking, right? But people are being squeezed out of 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 of, of the city centre. So yeah, I mean, spatial inequality is really is really important. And thankfully, you know, we've got activist groups like the Unite Behind. Uh, I saw there was an there was something with Prasa recently. 
So and thankfully you've got you've got these groups that are making this uh, making this a priority because without that, um, yeah, we don't we haven't developed the policies uh, yet to resolve this problem. We don't have a national um, territorial sort of framework, which is shocking considering the fact that you know as I said earlier, the history of land dispossession and forest removals it really is a it's a gap in our policy in our policy framework. So. I just, I just want to sneak in another question in relation to what you're saying that we don't have a framework or policy to tackle inequality itself. Mm. itself. Do you think it's on purpose? So, yeah, good question. It's, actually, there was, a, there, was a recent, there was a recent book by a group of IMF economists, funnily enough, uh, called Confronting Inequality, also funny enough, <laughs> which, which was released, which was released uh, last year. And they make the point that inequality is a function of political choice. So the policy options that are chosen ultimately is a product of the distribution of power within the society at a particular time. So when we're talking about capital-friendly policies like privatization, corporatization, deregulation, all those things that lead to inequality, we're really talking about the bargaining power of capital, a group of society over and above someone else. And that policy space is under contestation. So um, uh, we can speak about it more later, but the solution to inequality is a political solution. It's a product of political choice, it's a product of balance of power and so on. Now, it's just interesting that you said that because in relation to building popular movements and agitation and tackling inequality and how you said it's very bad for democracy, we could look at it in the level of women's participation and decision-making processes. For example, with the work that we're doing with the right to say no mm. and saying that consent lies in customary law, but if it silences the voices of women, then we can't be like customary law as a way to push for the right to say no. So it's just... It's, what you're saying is sparking a lot more thoughts in relation yeah. to some of the stuff that we're doing. Yeah. yeah sure. So, so another question that I want to pose to you is, what do we mean by saying that inequality is systemic? So, um, as I said earlier, this idea that, this now widely accepted idea is that capitalism is, that inequality is an inherent consequence of, 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 of capitalism. And when there has been an egalitarian um, capitalist arrangement like there was in the social democracy period in, in Western Europe, the advanced countries in the mid 20th century. That has been the result of, 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 of strong labor movements really that have, that have implemented redistributive policies. So in that sense, by systemic, I mean systemic, it's part of capitalism makeup. If you, if you think about it in terms of South Africa, then of course, you know, Inequality is a, is a product of, of, of our colonial and, a, and apartheid, apartheid past. Never Mugetna's contribution is, is, quite, um, is quite good in showing how, um, how, firstly, how apartheid institutionalized inequality and how those legacies reverberate today. And, um, and I think that when we're thinking about structural inequality today, we have to go back to the, to the context of the transition, to the bargains that were struck between the incipient ANC government, the National Party at the time, um, uh, the conglomerate structure, the dominant dominant faction of capital at the time around the middle energy complex and, and, and labor, because the result of that, the sort of the neoliberal blueprints with some BE and some concessions to labor and social grants and so on, it's really led to the deindustrialization we've experienced, mm. unemployment we've experienced, and those are the, the prime drivers of 
of inequality. And then, how do we fight inequality? <laughs> so, the book obviously it gives policy prescriptions, and not all of them are consistent with one another because not everyone's coming from the same angle. Some are sector specific, some are more broad and cross cutting. But the, like the point is to return to what, to, what, to, what, to, what, to what we said earlier is that these things aren't going to be realized unless there's a constituency that's promoting them, mm -hmm. right? So one can talk about salary caps, one can talk about the disclosure of pay ratios, mm -hmm. increasing public investment, but unless there is some type of social force of aggressive movement and so on, which is pressurizing state, the states, pressurizing government to implement these policies, then inequality will not be resolved. It's not, inequality is not a technical problem that demands a sort of a technical solution. You know? mm. A group of smart academics sitting at bits are not going to solve the problem. It really, it's, a, it's a social problem. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we can think about what that means you know, now. Building alternative, building institutions of counterpower. Yeah, we just had a conference. On that, so. Mm. Yeah. so then you'd say campaigning and working towards then halting illicit financial flows and basically profit shifting yeah. would be then a means to tackle inequality. Yeah. So agitating from trade unions to making sure that it's not just about then tax evasion, it's about wage evasion is a means then to tackle that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. So that, I mean that's one. That's that, that's one good way to tackle inequality and one can, one can lobby for uh, you know, stringent capital controls and so on. But the point is that unless there is a, a movement, unless there's a social force which is broad, which, which is educated, which is, um, uh, which is militant and which is connected with other people engaged in struggle, then these things, because it's about power, right? It's about power, so, yeah. Okay, then are there any other key points you'd like the readers to take away? or those that will read the book, to think of the book? Um, maybe at this, at this juncture to think about um, our democratic institutions mm -hmm. and sort of how important they are. You know, so I said, you need a social movement, you need political power, political power from, from below, but you also need a functioning state. You need a capable state. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, I think that's just something that people need to, need to think about the importance of holding government to account. It's not it's easier said than done. But uh, yeah. Thank you. So we're gonna throw it to you. To me done talking. <laughs> Your turn. So shall we take four questions or sure. four comments and then so we'll start with you. There's no one else? And Dave. Okay, so, okay, five, next one. May I, may I just want to your point, and I hope we don't spend more than a second on it, but to have four or multiple questions at once means we, we lose the first and the second and the third and the fourth question. Uh, I don't think we do adequate justice <coughs> in each question. So. I'm, I'm suggesting let's have one question, one answer, or one response. But if that's going to lead to much debate, then continue as you're doing. Your suggestion is thoroughly welcomed, but it's Michael's decision. Uh, maybe two at a time. Two at a time. 
comment there and then Dave. <coughs> so these are two major problems. They both uh, took uh, the fourth rights and basically colonial bonds. So they're interested in capitalism and protecting. So basically they both are going to make the country more cynical than just one. So up in the mind, we see the political party that actually uh, solves this problem. Except now there's one that I'm, I'd like to ask, ATM. Um, and and do you think that could be the poor party to actually be the at the moment, at the moment. No, I don't know. 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 No, I don't we might be just sitting there. Um, am I hearing you correctly? Secondly, is this what, which, are there any authors in the book that talk about political stuff, political movement that looks international? Okay. On the, the first question, I mean, I broadly, I broadly agree with your diagnosis of the DA and the ANC. They're certainly not anti-capitalist parties. There is a debate to be had about whether or not the ANC is a, some sort of a, uh, what's it, uh, well, yeah. degraded, <laughs> like so social democratic in some way because you know there's.
For example, you know, Yanis Varoufakis is trying this stuff with DM25, and I, I don't know, they, don't, they haven't really seemed to reach out to the global south. There's nothing equivalent happening on the periphery of global capitalism that you know, is equivalent to something that birthed the concept of socialism in one country in the first place in Russia. There's nothing happening like that now. So, but yeah, sorry, it's a roundabout way. Covered and some years have been carried. Okay, thanks, Kundit Michael. I was hoping, Kundit Michael, you were going to maybe also touch on exploitation in how it also assists the inequality. Also, if you may have statistics or some percentage of how much the ruling party have bought on willing buyer and willing seller land back because also the land, it also contributes on my thinking. But I think on the book we were more focused on political and economical. So the political part of it, I would put it in the exploitation. of willing buyer and willing seller so that we can make some conclusion where we are. Thanks. Thanks, Hans. Yes. My one question of gender, you know, specifically female income equality. I don't know how much you spoke about it in the book. I believe as young people, you know, the question of gender is doesn't have when we come to the patriarchal, you know, and cultural inequality as well. I'm sure when we talk about the question of gender, it's also uh, stepping back on this of culture of its own, you know, in privatizing the culture. Um, I'm interested to hear from your take on that and what 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 discussion on the book do you do you speak about gender? And this 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 theme is as well, and it could be steam, you know. Yeah. Um so Mike, you, you touch on this a little bit, but I think it would be worth expanding on the relationship between so so you mentioned the the um, IMF and recent reports that we can see a kind of shift in IMF thinking. There's a little bit of that in the World Bank as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about and, and in saying that, you said you know this is also this is actually a political choice. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of the interface between economic policy as a technical thing and the, the way in which that is that operates and the kind of political choices that are made at you know at a government level and how that kind of fuels this? Sure. Okay. Um. The issue of exploitation in the workplace by Comrade Lucy relates to what we said about gender. So let me put those two sort of together. I mean, in Neva Machetlin's piece um, in the book, she speaks about the workplace and how the, um, the institutions 
that and the culture that was that 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 that, that, that was around under apartheid has largely persisted. So in that sense, you have within the workplace high levels of gender discrimination. I think I mentioned the fact that the gender the gender wage gap that I it's 17%, it's 17 so this is for people doing the same job, the same, uh, you know, the same expertise and so on. So you have that, that you have clear dis discrimination, you also have a patriarchal, patriarchal hierarchical culture, um, which, exacerbates, which exacerbates the, the problem at the workplace. Um, and of course you've got racial dis discrimination. Racial discrimination can happen within the workplace, but also within sectors, so the high the high concentration within a particular section within a particular sector can be can be race, it can be cultured, it can be gendered, and so on. So never look at that everyone else is interested in it. Never look at this piece is 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 is, is the most appropriate when it comes to these questions. <coughs> Exploitation. I would. I mean, analytically, I like to make a distinct for my own clarity's sake a distinction between exploitation and discrimination. Because one one could have an absence of discrimination at the workplace, but you know if we agree that the normal functioning of a capitalist system involves the reproduction of this inequality, because the rate of return to labour is exceeded by the rate of return to capital, even within a non-discriminatory system, you're still going to have systemic exploitation, for lack of, for lack of word. Then um, on on land reform, I'm not a, I'm not I'm not an expert on this question. Or, uh, <coughs> it, to reference the book again, um, Ivan Turok, in his, in his discussion on spatial inequality, he speaks about how you know, we've had, as a consequence of a lack of economic activity in rural areas, you have this urbanization process. That urbanization has been beneficial to many of the people that are, are doing it, but of course that, that's not sustainable in the long term, considering the problems with our urban infrastructure that I mentioned earlier. But a lot of this is exacerbated by the land policy that's currently in place in rural areas. Uh, the land policy is not about stimulating um, economic activity uh, from below, encouraging small farming and so on. It's really been about replacing elites here and there piecemeal. So, I mean, that, that's the most that I can say. I, I suggest that you, that you, that you, that, that you read Ivan's, Ivan's contribution to the book. Carly, about... Um, political choices and political bar I mean it's the way that you understand the, how the policy process works and just to read uh, to re-emphasize what I said the, the, the decisions that are made are subject to a, a host of different influences part of that a tributary to that policy decision is academic intellectual work how that is funneled into the actual corridors of power is, is, is a different is a different question and um, the, I mean, the IMF, the IMF's change. I think the IMF has, ch has changed because the, the evidence is just so overwhelming. So it's 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 very difficult. It's very difficult to hold on to it. But maybe we can talk about you know, some people have moved in with a different perspective, a new consciousness, and so on, which is which has changed it. I think what I didn't say is what I, I mean. I, I referenced the, the the context of the, the transition earlier and the bargains that were struck. We're, we're approaching a similar moment now because you know, Ronald Bozer is saying we're gonna, we need to have a social compact yeah. and social compact needs to be based on consensus between labor and capital and, and, and so on. But the trick is to, you know, is, is to, is to, look, to look at the composition of uh, 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 the power composition. Who, who is given a seat to the table? Who's not given a seat to the table? Um, 
and so on. I mean, mm. I can speak longer on it, but I think uh, Comment here, Dominic, Jeff, Puba. And Paulo, you like? Okay, so Paulo from the last one can take this comment first. Uh, thanks, Chair. I hope you won't mind if I slip in two questions. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure, but try. <laughs> um, you mentioned, Michael, that uh, deindustrialization took place. As a result of a number of decisions we took in 1994, uh, people often speak about the magic nostrum, small business, beneficiation as a pathway to reindustrialize. Uh, so I'd like to ask you to comment on what you see as a, a more realistic pathway to reindustrialization. And the second issue is the developmental state we all talk these days about the developmental state, but there's very little content to what people say. And even before the gross corruption of the Zuma era, the state wasn't very capable. And it seems to me that probably the most important aspect of a developmental state is it has to be capable of doing things. Uh, so I'd like to hear your comments on that as well. So, um, I thought that was a very important question that I also wanted to come back to in a bit. Um, the first thing is both uh, capitalists and socialists have been clearly care about inequality, but for different reasons. Both locating or have, have a different understanding of it, and both have different solutions or alternatives. Some does this book go far enough in giving a critical perspective from that in mainstream media in understanding, or mainstream narratives rather, in understanding inequality and providing alternatives to it? Relating to that, saying that you uh, highlight that it's a political issue for confronting uh, inequality is a political issue, does this book uh, do enough, or do the authors in this book? do enough to highlight that. Uh, that's the first question. And then the second one, in relation to the industrial policy, uh, my question in terms of that is, I just want to put it in a context. I'm happy with everything that the previous question asked, but given how financialized the economy is, and I'm sure you engaged with Carl Van Holt's recent paper on corruption and how sometimes corruption can lead to the deindustrialization. But you think within the broader context of the financialization of the economy, can, given the current trajectory of South Africa, can we actually go back onto an industrial an industrial path? Uh, yeah. Maybe let's let's start there. Um, and financialization. Um, previous comment mentioned deindustrialization, the causal pathways between financialization and deindustrialization I think are quite are quite strong. What does that mean for new pathways for industrialization? I think that you know we're not going to return to the old sort of manufacturing houses of the of, of the past. 
I, I don't think. I, I, I also there's another there's another question to add to this, which is the um, you know people are gonna people are gonna shoot me when I say it, the fourth industrial revolution or whatever new new forms of new forms of technology, new forms of work, and what does that mean for industrial policy? I'm I'm I unfortunately I can't I, can't, I, I don't have ready made. Um, solutions to that and what I, mean, what I do know is that we can halt the pace of financialization if we you know if we implement capital controls and so on if, you know the mandate of the reserve bank for something is something that we is something that we can that we can that we can talk about away from sort of a narrow inflation targeting adding growth and employment to its mandate and not manipulating interest rates in the interest of financial of financial capital um, the developmental state story, the developmental state is an interesting concept because you know it's used. We, we try to make this comparison between the South Korean experience and the East Asian Tigers experience. We'll say uh, will also be developmental. But the thing about the developmental state is, it's you know it's again it's 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 not it's not about good intentions of of of, of policy bureaucrats, right? It's about to very crudely, it's about class power. It's about the the configuration of class power within the state. The, cap the, the problem with, uh, um, with um, the situation of an incapable state is that the state in South Africa is at least it has been a site of class accumulation of, of a type of accumulation because of the broader economic problems that we that were that were creating inequality. Um, then Dominic, you asked something else. Oh, the book. The book. Does it does it go far enough to pose questions of capitalism and socialism? Does it go far enough in offering a critical perspective on equality that goes beyond the mainstream perspectives? Because given that it's an issue that's dealt with by both right-wing and left-wing people, uh, and I think the mainstream narrative is mostly that of while inequality can easily be addressed by uh, redistributive uh, issues, but does it, and relating to the question of the political forces or the political issues, <coughs> does the book go far enough to make that case? Or is it simply we can implement some policies and then we can yeah. address the yeah. policies? It depends which, 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 which article in the book you're reading, right? So some, some of the articles in the book are narrowly focused articles coming from a particular political perspective which is not necessarily shared by other authors. When it comes to the sort of like the political, the political program of fleshing out a political program of an alternative way to which to, con to confront the inequality and equality section, then um, no, not I mean Ben Turok's contribution. You know, he he's the one who speaks about the fact that you know that inequality, as as I said earlier, is a political problem. It's about <coughs> changing systemic systemic. Um, Problems, but the book as a whole, you know, there's there's some there's some sections on, on you know, different dimensions like wage and spatial and so on. But no, it's not it's 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 it's, it's not as a whole what you what you what you're demanding is necessary. And uh, I agree with you, Bobby. If you read my my conclusion, my concluding remarks, you will see that. Uh, yeah. Jeff. I'm 
Micah spoke, let me first thank you for putting the book together. I haven't read it, so I don't know your introduction or your conclusion. Uh, but let me at least address what I see as perhaps a follow-on from what uh, Dominic was saying. If, as you say, inequality is inherent in capitalism as a worldwide system, then where's that analysis when one says specifically about South African inequality that it's due to colonialism, whatever that means, and apartheid, whatever that means? The danger is that the very analysis gets lost in the description when we come to South Africa. And more particularly, perhaps, is we're now 25 years of a new democratic South Africa. And as you've said, and the book almost certainly says as well, inequality hasn't only been reproduced, but has got worse. Is there any section in the book, or from yourself for that matter, that relates that reproduction of inequality, plus the fact that it's got worse, to the capitalism that you say causes the inequality worldwide? Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming for sharing the book. I haven't read the book myself. I saw it somewhere, but I thought you'd come and, and hear it as well as well. But I'm, I'm pleased not to be covered around the 70% of minorities still own the most production of this country. What does it mean in the book? You know, look at on the um, dollar versus rent. You know, so I feel that dollar is racist itself. Uh, but we can be much better of that. And the last question would be, is any like if we can get some books also cover the negotiations, you know, of Copenhagen's 1978 with 1979 and Cortesa 1 and also Cortesa 2. So that's those two spheres they can show the equality because the inheritance came from those elements, especially where we see the image of the bee, the black bourgeoisie, you know, coming in place, which is the leader, which is the new dawn. I don't believe in the new dawn. You know, so I, I'm not sure which part of the book I discover in terms of and where in terms of the marginalized that you can able to liberate, you know, the information I have and see that um, in the context of this politics of election that works for the mass majority of like poor keep on voting. That's not an equality by voting where you don't have the power. You only have the power only one week to vote and then after that you need to wait for this six to seven years to realize that you realize that you have the power. So I think I'll pause it from there. Sure. Okay. Um, let's start with Jeff. The, 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 the utility of speaking about colonialism and apartheid as causal categories, right? Now, I, so I didn't mean to say that. It, I, I meant to say that these are, what we're seeing are residues of a colonial and part and an apartheid history, and one cannot understand, let's say, the the image that one when one looks at descriptively, when one looks at the nature of inequality, then you cannot understand this without referencing the history. When it comes, of course, to how inequality is reproduced today, we don't have a white majority government, we don't have formal racist laws and so on, so there are other mechanisms by which this is being sustained. It's being sustained by new forms of 
class accumulation, and you can look, at, uh, you know, if you look at what happened to the previously dominant, dominant uh, white capital uh, uh, and Africana capital at the context of the transition, the interests change. You know, we don't have Anglo-American anymore dominating the stock exchange. You know, the delisted, unbundled, internationalized, financialized. And you've got to understand how that process has reproduced inequality. What you also understand is the new black elite and the forms of class accumulation that that has taken, uh, the form of class accumulation and the squeeze that that's placed on the majority of people. You know, as I said earlier in the conversation, at the high income levels, you've seen some equalizing effect on inequality and parts of that has been through this through a very narrow BE process um, which has taken place via uh, and in the interests I would say in the context of the it's very important to remember in the context of the bargains Cadessa and so on it was BE was an idea of Anglo-America it was their idea and it was a man it was a way in which to to, let's say, narrow the scope of the demands of the black majority on that bargaining process. Another, another form of accumulation has also been through, as I said, through the state, via networks of corruption and patronage and so on. So, apologies if you thought the, the causal clarification was all wrong, clarifying. Um, then, I mean, I think I've answered a couple of the questions that you, that, that, that you raised. When it comes to ownership, uh, look, like, the transfers of ownership habits don't necessarily lead to better outcomes for employers and for the, the value chain in a particular sector. I mean, the mining chart is a very good example, right? So what, so what the mining chart says is that you have these tenders and you must procure from black owners. But the black owners are importing goods from, from, from somewhere and they, have, they are also reproducing discriminatory labor practices in the workplace, whether that's patriarchy and so on. So we need to think sort of, uh, beyond, uh, beyond, beyond ownership. Uh, I completely agree with you about uh, you know, voting once every four years is not exactly the um, fullest expression of what it means to be a democratic citizen, of course. There's another, and that's a whole other conversation which is related to the question of how to confront inequality and related to the question about how to build counter power is thinking about how we can build more suitable fuller expressions of democratic participation. I mean, look, the interested parties aren't going to do it. Disinterested parties aren't going to do it. It's not going to come from above. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I don't that's a topic for another, yeah. Paula, and then two comments there. Yes, yeah. I've read your book. Um, and some of my question may be somehow a bit related to or similar to what Dominique can just said. Because when you open your, your talk, Sorry, I'm going to stand because I can't see you. So, <laughs> so when you first started talking, I was a bit surprised. I wanted to challenge you when you said that inequality was never a big issue until recently. Well, I feel that among socialists and communists, there's always been 
the key issue, ownership, property, inequality. So for me, what is the danger that exactly that's now become fashionable, including the academic world and so on, and the media, so that it's, a, it's now going to be dominated by liberal voices, which are showing a concern because poverty has got such level, it's, a, it's actually a threat to the sense that you know, in South Africa, people are, I wouldn't say actually dying of hunger, but deficit malnutrition, so it's at an absolutely desperate level. And you actually need to keep this mass of unemployed people, which can be played against each other. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, what's the danger exactly? Even the social media, because for example, for me, I'm very um, amused by the whole uh, discourse on corruption at the moment. Okay, so it's like a club of um, sorry, a network of whiteboards exposing exposing corruption in the state, which we don't, of course, we must condemn. We were writing about how white wealth was acquired in this country over 300 years. What's that corrupted or the reduce? Who is writing about the anthem group that acquired his wealth? It's absolute silence as if that was legitimate. There was no corruption, and corruption only emerges with the new states. You know? um, so for me, these are kind of concerns about who is dominating the thing. And I'm sorry to, to say, but look at, I'm here often, up for the last, what, 10 years, I've been coming to there, I've, I've actually worked here. And usually, who is the, the people who are present in this room today is completely different. When you're looking at an issue that inequality is absolutely critical to the black majority where it is today. But who is here to, today? sitting in this room. And so for me, these are kind of concerns who will dominate the voices. Thank you. Take your hand and then my correspondent and you. And um, to focus things to be really action-orientated, um, if you were made president after May 8th, what would be the first uh, few things that you would implement? And taking as a given that all the vested interests would continue to exert the forces that they do, you'd still have to negotiate, obviously, with the forces of capitalism around the world. So what would be those starting steps that would actually get us going from being academics to being actual uh, changes of the situation. I'll leave that for last. <laughs> um, yes, so the question about inequality becoming mainstream, dominated by liberal voices, uh, now that it is fashionable, I think that it's very appropriate to raise to raise that con to raise that concern. I when I mentioned it, I mentioned it as sort of a tongue in cheek sort of way, you know, again, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's funny that, the, you know, the IMF, the people who promoted the policies that now they admit, they promoted the very same policies, they, are, they, they admit to the fact that those policies have caused inequality just, just 20 years later, it's, it's, uh, it, it's quite, it's quite ironic. Um, yes, so, liberals, um, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, I, 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 like, think 
in, 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 in what, what the, the liberal mainstream generally does when they speak about inequality is they speak about inequality in terms of discrimination, which is fine, it is good. So they will say representativity of such and such, the boardroom and, and all of that, which is fine. We've spoken about ownership earlier and have said about how limited that is. The liberals don't generally want to hear about systems change. They don't want to hear about exploitation. They don't want to hear about uh, you know, uh, 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 things that are going to affect class inequality um, in general. And so I think that it's incredibly important for progressives to, to, to sort of fill that space and, and, and to... Uh, and to and, uh, and to distinguish this argument from the mainstream argument that we're going to be hearing over and, and over and over uh, again um, uh, from the you know the usual culprits. Um, then, when it comes to when it comes to who's tracking white wealth, I mean, there's a lot of a, what what's good about this book. Um, uh, there's a there's a there's a uh, there's a company called Who Owns Who, and they they do they they, they do they're trying to, to, to track that to track the flows to track the composition of it. Uh, in the book, there's a piece by David Francis and Caitlin Massey, which also shows the executive pay what you know what the, what uh, 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 or at least they're showing the um the, the, they're describing how large it is. Um, there is a lot of historical work on, say, you know, Anglo-American, Cecil John Rhodes, and, and I think that the, the voices, the voices are diversified. They really are. I think that if you if you if 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 you look at literature that is being produced now, you will find that the space is going to be is going to be full. I I I have very very little doubt about that. And if and if not, it will be forced through by just 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 sheer numbers and sheer enthusiasm. I I I'm not too worried about about that. Um, if I'm president, uh, I mean, I, with all the forces that are at play now, what is the first thing I would do? And uh, I think if I was president, I mean, the one thing that I could do, I think, and I mean, I don't know all the, the machinations within the ANC, and with, I'm assuming that I'd be in the ANC, and, uh, <laughs> and, and within the state, but I mean, it really it would be cleaner, like, it would be, it would be, it would be rooting out corruption as much as I can, having a professionalized uh, 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 bureaucracy, a capable bureaucracy, um, those are things that I think at least I would have some space, some space for that. When it comes to say something like the massive public investment that I think is necessary, then you start bringing in different forces of the state, and you start bringing in treasury's interests, and you start bringing in, you know, it becomes more complicated. Um, maybe you need someone that understands the state better to ask that question. Oh, just to get things, to get the ball rolling, you know. To, to make some cracks in the system. Um, yeah. I think not everyone isn't completely selfish. In fact, a lot of people are not that selfish. They really do want um, to make it better for everyone. And yeah. so how to empower them to give them a chance, you know? I think, I think if you ask 
if you ask the question from the other point of view, from the, from, from the below point of view, it's about creating those institutions that I, that I, that I spoke about. Uh, and, and, you know, again, like thinking about the, term of the president and the president's power, it is limited, but yeah. I mean, um, that's something that, it's a question that can be opened up to the room. I,
I would also like to say that in the assembly of arguments and the need to understand the bigger picture and the global picture, it's not the only picture, but I support reading uh, Thomas Piketty's book because it adds, um, you don't, it, it's, it, for many people it's too intimidating to see a volume like this, but you don't need to read the whole volume. You can dip into pieces of it, and one of them, for example, deals quite clearly with take South Africa 1994, and now we say the playing field is equal. And here is someone who has millions, and here is someone who has nothing. And Thomas Piketty makes the point, if you accept the capitalist model that we are in, that he says the person who starts with nothing has no possibility by all the evidence that he collects from France, Britain, and the United States to say that there could ever be equality in economic power between the one who starts with nothing and the one who starts with a lot. And so I encourage people to read, and so I'm making just a comment as well. I'm not asking you to necessarily defend any particular issue. Thank you. No, I think, think those, two, those two comments were, were, were helpful. Um, I think that there are two, at least two things. The first, you can separate, you need a new analytical framework to understand things. That's one, that's one, something that I extracted from that. And then also we need to imagine new futures beyond visions that have been constructed in, in, in the past. In theory, I would, I would, I would agree with both. Um, I, I, I think, I think however that the obviously 21st century capitalism as it is in South Africa now is not the same as 16th century capitalism as it was in the 16th century, 17th, 18th century capitalism as it was in the UK. However, there are still forces, there are still compulsions, there are still things that are the same between the two. Therefore, it means that there are some, there's some value uh, in retaining some of those analytical frameworks of the past to understand our present day. <coughs> Capital still exists under conditions of competition. It still exists to extract profit from people. The form in which that occurs changes from time to time, but nonetheless, there are still some underlying universal processes across time. However, if we're going to start asking deeper existential questions about what it means to be a human being experiencing the system, then economics and the tools of political economy are only going to get you so far. There are other, there are other forms of thinking, there are other forms of practice which might help, including psychology and philosophy and so on. It's really, it's, this, thing is, this thing is rich. When it comes to imagining alternatives, look, we should never go back to 20th century socialism, let's just say. That was a disaster. Planned economy, it didn't work, it didn't work. So if we're, if, we're, if we're thinking about new futures, then we do need to, we do need to uh, uh, have wide, uh, have wide uh, uh, imaginations, I would say. But I would, you know, at the same time, be aware of those similar underlying <coughs> processes and the utility of certain forms of thought to reveal those to us. Yeah.
So I guess the question I'm trying to figure out is, because I came in the hope that the book would give me new insights, to what are the transformatory patterns that must happen? What new rules must we make? Because the current rules said politically, economically, socially, technologically, legally, environmentally, everybody's been bringing up, doesn't work. Does the book suggest of history of success what transformatory patterns do in fact solve inequality? Does the book hypothesize on philosophy that the new rule set across all sectors should be this? Because I guess as we move into Industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution, we're asking, do we see the collective transformatory pattern that must exist for mankind? And I, I, I think th this is what I'm hoping you bring some light to. Hence I came. <laughs> Can I respond immediately? Yes. I, I don't, don't have the capacity. I, I don't think that anyone or any one academic or anyone think any any person can can can, can deliver such a type a type of book. What the book does do is, you know, limited <coughs> to capitalism now and capitalism that exists in South Africa now. There are certain policies that would make things relatively better, and the book is quite good at that certain dimensions. So it, it talks about wage inequality. How, how might that be improved? Well, what we can do is we could have, we could tell executives, we could, we could tell them to cap their pay, you know, and thereby we can funnel those resources either back into the company for reinvestment or to the labor force in that particular company. That's not going to solve what you're saying, which is the broader institutional, the rules, the underlying rules that govern the system. That's a cross-cutting Social, uh, 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 social question. There are there are people that are uh, that are working on this, collectives that are working on this. Uh, th but I still think that even though we are anxious to see that develop, that we want a sort of a manifesto, you know, there are things that can happen now that would make things relatively better. And it's through those small steps that you generate some type of momentum. To achieve the broader institutional change, and in that sense, the book is the book is useful. Huh? Yeah, uh, these are things you may touch on some of the earlier comments in relation to colonialism, apartheid, etc. And particularly, I think I will speak on something you haven't mentioned today, but you spoke on uh, states and PE being a part of accumulation, first part of history, etc. Can you speak about entry racial inequality in first part? Because when we speak about inequality in the country, we always speak about interracial inequality, i.e. inequality between races, and we sometimes neglect race within a racial group. So can you speak to the trend you've seen uh, since 94 on, in, on interracial inequality? Um, I think that, uh, from my memory, one thing I do know that at least within black African racial category, the inequality has increased um, uh, uh, quite dramatically. And, um, and, that, and, and that speaks to patterns of class, class formation. And uh, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, do you have any, any more, I mean, do you know the other, uh, no, any, more, any more to add? No, my statistics is that uh, at the moment, Interracial inequality contributes more to generalized inequality than interracial inequality, mm -hmm. i.e., inequality within black African women, colors, and Indians, 
and amongst white people in their so-called racial groupings is a larger contribution to national inequality than inequality between black and white people. So I think that's just I yeah. think a caution against people who only limit inequality to between races and understand that that's not how inequality functions in the country. That's just and then it, 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 that's, it's causation, right? That's that's what's like discrimination is one facet of a broader question of the reproduction of inequality. Prejudice is one factor. It's intergroup prejudice. Yeah. It's Thanks. Uh, hey Mark, thanks for the presentation. So, uh, just a question on assisting thinking through alternatives to the current regime. So, Ellen Markson's work was an interesting book called Empire of Capital, where she tries to trace the specific differences between um, different modes of producing things in different economies. And that inequality hasn't necessarily been a problem, particularly for capitalism, but in other instances like feudalism as an example. So she's trying to draw distinctions between, well, absolutely inequality is a massive problem under capitalism, but she also makes an interesting observation that market dependency or meeting our needs through the market is a problem in particular for capitalism. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on that. Um, and if that is a good argument to make about then starting to think of, well, if market depends on a particular problem, then how do we think of ways of becoming independent from the market? Um, yeah, I think I haven't read, I haven't read that, that book. I think that that's right, that dependence on the market is, is, is Part of, part, of, part of what it means to exist in a capitalist um, economy. I think this is why, you know, uh, struggles to decommodify um, basic services, at least like education and housing and so on, is so important that, that um, uh, yeah, that some 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 goods need to be and you know imagining how it might look like at no goods. I mean, someone mentioned the UBI. How could that be extended? I'm not completely sold on the UBI solution at the moment because I think that's a, there's something suspicious about the fact that they you know Silicon Valley is. I mean, that's one thing to, to say. It's being promoted by, and in a way, it's if if if, if handled incorrectly, it might actually undercut. Um, the ability of, of the poor to actually advance their interests politically. Mm. But yeah, I think it's useful to speak about, to think about capitalism and market dependency. Mm. Yeah. So I have a, a question about regulation. There was a, a discussion on the radio today about Airbnb and the bill yesterday to um, to increase regulation for short-term rentals, which includes Airbnb. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of people phoning in saying, why is the government messing with things again? And, you know, this is an opportunity for the small guy to make a living and so forth. So um, what would you say, like, considering is there, any something, is there something in the book, or what can you say about regulating things like Airbnb, especially in our context of spatial inequality in cities like Cape Town but South Africa broadly for the world. So the first thing to say is that it's not the small guy. If you are if you have the capacity to rent out 
and apartments on Airbnb. And this is not this is not the government coming in and regulating, you know, your your, your small you know, yeah, that's that's not right. Uh, I in in terms of in terms of the, the housing crisis in Airbnb is it's a global it's a global it's a global crisis. You know, I mean, I was in Vancouver recently. And it's quite shocking to see. I mean, we, we have yeah, massive apartment buildings and no one inside. And it relates to Alex's intervention about market dependency. Like, you know, once a house becomes a commodity and there's a disjuncture between its use value and its exchange value, and then all of a sudden the worth, the, the value, the economic value attached to that becomes totally detached from what it's actually meant to do, but it actually facilitates accumulation for the people that are not the small people. So there are, there are countries that are, that are I, think, I think I've heard that Berlin, it's banned in Berlin, I, I, I think. Um, and, and again, this, this, it's about, I mean, it's, it's, if, if Airbnb happens in Cape Town, like, and, and, and flies off like it's happened, we already have these forces that are pe pushing people to the periphery of the city. And that's going to encroach further and further into the middle class. I mean, the middle class uh, uh, in uh, Mary and Simone uh, and uh, uh, Rocco's piece in the book, they speak of. I mean, it's, it's, it's useful to it's useful to see it. It's quite frightening that how how even the middle classes face quite a severe threat of of poverty, and things like Airbnb uh, 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 co contribute. Contribute to this is going to create uh, ghost cities. So, yeah, it relates to Alex's point about commodification. Alrighty. So, I guess there's no more questions or comments. Unless you wanted to say something. Yeah, I don't think it's a question or something. Like, it's based on reality, like what's happening in the township. So, we saw inequality on trial and see. So what's happening that the ANC and all this government have been promising people like safety for everyone who lives in the township and for women, but they do not deliver. And then come this guy now, who's a taxi driver. They say, at this moment, we know we're not going to give you land or anything. We don't want to say stuff to you. So what we need from you, vote for us. Then we come to parliament, then we're going to make safety for the children, and the women, they need to prove of that. They can, they can destroy the township for two days or one day. They make township peaceful. But then comes cops and they interview, and then it's back on the same reality. So what would be your say on the people of the township on that day? Like how can they look into it? Because it's something like no political party is doing, but this guy, they are doing without no one concern. But now we say we just need to help. And then going forward, we can get, as people, be organized and know what you want and move forward. So I'm just asking that if you, you were there, those people in the township, what would you say on that? I, 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 wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know because I, I haven't experienced I haven't experienced it. But I, I mean, I can only give sort of general Comments about organization and and um, <coughs> community empowerment and, and and to the best of 
to the best of your ability. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture into the, that. That problem seems like it's a problem that people who have lived, like you know, who are experiencing it, would be better place to. Other than generalities, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. We can maybe try to speak about it more afterwards, and we can explain more. And yeah. Sorry, just one question. It seems to me that the big thing that's missing, and I heard someone slightly mention it, but it wasn't really talked about, and I don't know if it is talked about in the book, is the ecological crisis. Because it seems to me that if we're talking about inequality in the next 15 years, that's going to be the biggest contributor to inequality globally, right? Because we're creating so many climate refugees, yeah. we're seeing people who are disproportionately going to be affected by that, and you see the elite being able to kind of buy their way out of the effects of climate change. Is that something that anyone in the book uh, deals with? And what are your thoughts on that? Um, read through the book. It's, it's spoken about, but it's not, it's not given a, sort of a prominent, prominent role in, 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 in the book. But it, it, it's, uh, it's, of course, an existential threat. Someone mentioned it earlier. Um, um, I, 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 I don't have much more to add other than to say that it's, it's yes, so 10, 15 years or something? Yeah. I mean, it's another, it's another representation of a systemic problem with, with capitalism as it is now. So, yeah. What was your message after a message of the whole book and who was your target market? In the afternoon? So I did a summary <laughs> of what happened and then I said what the key findings were and so on. I mean my, 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 my point of writing in the afternoon was to say what's missing from the book. Right? So I said that what's one of the striking things that's that's missing, and Dominic and Jeff brought it up. Dominic is like is is, this, uh, is a political economy analysis, which is is which is sort of unashamedly centering the concept of capitalism. How does capitalism work? How is it situated in the South African context? What are its international linkages? And if you're doing that, then you have to start thinking about financialization, all of those things. That that didn't happen to to a great degree in, in the book. I, 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 I ended off by saying that what I said, uh, what I've been saying throughout, and people have been asking me to flesh this out, and I've done a poor job. But the political, the political dimension of, of fighting inequality is, 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 is incredibly important. And I, as I said, you know, this, these are many different parts. You know, there's an intellectual dimension. There's definitely an intellectual dimension. It's an organizing dimension. There's civil society and social movements and so on. And you can't have a conversation about how to resolve inequality without having a conversation about how to build institutions of counterpower. You see? Now academia is not exactly in its current form, you know, academia is not the place where that's gonna happen. Can we imagine a different type of university in which these issues are taken seriously and are not, you know, uh, part of a, a pathway to a tenure track, you know, then like, yes, then the, the university will become an instrument of social reform. There's a battle to be had there. So, yeah. Um, what are the best examples 
that you, you can offer from other countries, um, even if we don't take them wholesale, but just take the better pages out of their book in terms of um, rectifying inequality. And uh, one person that I follow is uh, Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times. And he, of course, highlights all the terrible things that have been happening, Syria, Yemen, and so on. And yet, he said that 2018 was the best year ever, meaning that, and then he quoted how many people have been lifted out of poverty, etc. And I mean, if, even though the 20th century was such a terrible century in terms of war, um, if you look how terrible the previous centuries were, I mean, women were not allowed to vote, um, there was so much infant mortality, uh, so much fighting, and it's just that they didn't have such powerful weapons. Um, there's this argument, and I think Stephen Pinker also makes a similar kind of argument that the world is getting better in spite of looking so terrible. Um, what's your balancing take on that? First thing to say is if you're talking about people that have been removed from poverty in the, in the rec in recent years, you have to talk about China. And what's interesting <coughs> in the conversation about how things are getting better you know, is, is you know, it's usually said to justify a preservation of a particular type of market capitalism, right? But if you look at the developmental experience in, let's say, post colonial states that has been through the East Asian tigers, you know, the developmental state we spoke about earlier, that has been through state intervention in the economy, state leadership of the economy, the decommodification of certain um, of, of certain products um, that that is actually behind this 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 success story. So there's an article by, if you're looking at Steven Pinker, there's an article by Jason Hickel, who I think is a, from the LSE, and he does a sort of a forensic analysis of all of Pinker's key claims, this is the rosy, rosy picture. When it comes to good examples, of course, I say China, China has achieved this, but you know, what is the cost of that being? I mean, well, it's, it's, quite, it's a scary thing to think about, because if you look at those development experiences in South Korea, for, for example, you also had a degree of authoritarianism there. You had a degree of, uh, let's say, leadership in a very in a stronger sense of sense of itself. Other countries that have had, that have managed to achieve equality with democracy are the like of course the Scandinavian countries. Um, you know, Norway have you know they've used their oil. I mean not everyone has access to that, but uh, you know these are experiments that we should um, yeah that we can that. that that we can that we can look to, um, and you know, there are possibilities now. I would say with Bernie and AOC, and you know, people are you know the UK and stuff's happening. Yeah. I think that's a great way to close. Stuff's happening. We could all just go home. Stuff is happening. <laughs> I don't know if you have any final remarks. So I guess I have to resume my chair responsibilities, pull everything together. Um, first, I'd like to thank everyone for coming and to say that the next Amanda Forum will be happening on the 30th of April.
um, watch the space about what the forum is about. But getting back to other stuff, I think what's been interesting about the talk itself and what's come out of the room is that there, everyone is begging for alternatives. And we're at a point now where it's become particularly clear that some of us have a grasp on what the issues are. It could be the ecological crisis, it could be issues around inequality. But what we're asking for is what to do next. And I think um, as much as the book doesn't necessarily pose that and give that forth, I think it's, much, it's important sometimes to bring things together and first remind ourselves and figure out what, where are the gaps and then move on to start building forward. So I think, I mean, I, I don't have any proper chosen remarks other than to say we need to also critically be thinking about the ecological crisis itself and not moving it to sort of a 10-year trajectory because if or if day zero was a real thing, we would have had climate refugees, where people would have to move from the Western Cape inland, and there would have been another dynamic. The cyclone that hit Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe is a clear sort of, I guess, wake-up call <coughs> on what's necessarily taking place and what's going to happen. And there's so many other things that the cyclone has brought forth that we haven't been th thought about. Um, how natural disasters impact women's bodies, how natural disasters impact the whole situation of the rich can live at any, can leave at any moment in time. And it hasn't brought that forth and thoroughly thought about it. And I'm just thinking right now, maybe in the process of developing alternatives, our first stab at the whole elephant is handling and critically engaging with the ecological crisis itself. 